Let's take our Bibles, turn to Psalm 121. We are going to take a a few minutes and uh, walk our our way through this psalm. This is actually one of the psalms I had considered doing for Sunday, and you'll you'll see that the themes are similar. Uh, I could have gone on ahead with the series that I was preaching, but I thought, well, uh, again, we've got other things on our minds, and perhaps it might just be more beneficial to, again, draw our attention to uh, these great attributes of God. Uh, and, and what I find, and this is true after 20 years of pastoral ministry, that, that the best thing I can do as a pastor, even, even for myself personally, that when it comes to whatever the trial and tribulation may be, whether it's personal health-related, family circumstance-related, nature-related, at the end of the day, what the Bible does for me over and over again is it forces me to see and understand the greatness and the power of God. It forces me to think very deeply and carefully about who He is, about His attributes, about His promises, and that really that's what we have to hold on to. That that, that is our strength, that is our hope to once again be reminded of who God is. The the greatest, I wouldn't say antidote because you're still going to have worry and anxiety, but, but the greatest way to combat anxiety over uncertainty is with confidence in God's sovereignty. I, I think that is what you have to do. I think you have to go again and again and again, almost like you're talking to yourself and telling yourself this over and over again, that no matter what the circumstances may be, God is sovereign. And that there, there's great grace that comes to the people of God when we reflect on this. And so, Psalm 121, put, putting it in, in a bit of context, you'll note, in fact, if you went back to Psalm 120, you'll see it there as well. This is part of, uh, of a section of Psalms called the Song of Ascents. Some of you may be familiar with this. This was a section, there are a number of Psalms in it, that would have been used by those traveling from wherever they were to Jerusalem. These would be songs, the the pilgrims would have sung along the way. They would be preparing themselves then for the, the, the feast that was to come, whatever day of remembrance they were going to. Uh, that these songs would provide a means by which they could confess their sin. They could confess their confidence and joy in the Lord. Some of these songs have language of sorrow in them. Some of them have language of confidence and, and trust. And the reason they're called the Song of Ascents, you, you, and again, you may know this, so sorry if I'm repeating something you've already been made aware of. You know, Jerusalem is called a city set on a hill, right? That no matter where you come from, you've got to go up to go to Jerusalem, at least back in the day. That's how they understood it. It was the city set on a hill, and so the Song of Ascents was just that, that as they sang, as they repeated these words, they were going up and up and up. So they were doing physically what they were to be doing spiritually, preparing their hearts for what would be the worship of God. So this is the second Song of Ascents. It begins in verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the hills... From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. 
He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So again, you know, I think even just at the first reading of the text, you, you see that which sounds familiar. There, there's nothing really um, uh, unusual here. It kind of is what it sounds like. The, the, the pilgrims who would have been making their way to Jerusalem would be singing this song of the promise of God's help. That God in His goodness and in His grace to His people will provide them with help. And the language of the psalm is intended to describe that which is very real and practical and present. That God is a God who is with me in the midst of whatever it may be. He is present with me. So, so notice again the beginning of it. The way he begins and asks a question. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? Now, now already we, we do have an, an interesting way the psalm begins, because some you know, may read that and think, I lift up my eyes to the hills. In other words, is that a way of saying, so, so I, I'm looking up, I'm looking up and beyond the circumstances of my life uh, to see where my help comes from. Now, that could be the way some may take the phrase, right, to look, look up under the hills, look up under the high uh, places, meaning that, you know, is, is, is that getting me to lift my gaze up before God. I'm inclined to think, though, that's not what he's talking about here. When he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. In fact, I just referenced a phrase. I referenced the phrase, the high places. If you've ever read through the Old Testament, you find one of the biggest problems in Israel is the way king after king built high places. You recall that phrase? It was usually an altar of some kind. Sometimes it was a pole, an Asheroth pole. That's, a, that's one example. In other words, the high places were places where they engaged in pagan worship. It was not uncommon then that the hills could have had locations of pagan worship. And so when the, you know, as they're traveling, as they are traveling from point A to Jerusalem, wherever they're coming from, it is entirely possible that the hills that they are passing by have evidences of pagan locations that Israel had used in her history, maybe even at that moment. And so the psalmist, I think, is intentionally drawing attention to this and saying, I, look, I will lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Almost like a sarcastic way of saying, I'm looking unto to these high places. Is there any help out here? Where does my help come from? Will it come from these things? Will, will it come from these pagan gods? Will it come from these false locations of worship? I, I like the way that begins, if that is in fact what he's referring to, and I'm inclined to think that he is. Because I, I think it illustrates how easy it is for you and I to lift our eyes and look to other places for help. 
I think that's what he's getting at. Where, where is it that I'm looking for strength? Where is it that I'm looking for peace? Where is it that I am, I am looking for the means by which I can walk through whatever trial or tribulation I might find myself in? And though you and I may not look unto hills and look unto false places of worship or false gods, you and I still can look to the wrong places, right? Maybe we can assume that our peace and anxiety, uh, our peace will, our anxiety will give way to peace. If we had enough money, peace, our peace will come if we just had the right set of circumstances, right? I look under my circumstances. Where does my help come from? Well, it'll, it'll come when I've got enough money in the bank and better health and everything is secure. Maybe some people look unto other structures in society, right? I look unto FEMA. Is that where my help is going to come from? All right. Is that, is that who's going to do it for me? I, I, look, I look unto the government. Is that, is that where my help will come from? Again, it's not to say these places can't provide aid in the midst of a storm, so don't get me wrong. But I think he is asking us the ultimate question. When I lift up my eyes, where am I looking to for help? Where will my help come from? How am I going to be able to manage whatever it is that I find myself in? So he answers. My help's not going to come from the hills. It's not going to come from some of these other sources. My help comes from the Lord. And then notice that last phrase. It is a phrase we encounter so often in the Bible that we just, we read it and think, oh yeah, great. But to, but to say, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Biblically and theologically, there's no other phrase that offers a more succinct statement of the greatness of God than that one. I, what, I, what I mean is the biblical writers are always doing this for us, that when, when they're wanting to contrast you know, the, the lack of what, what may be available from earthly sources, they will often contrast that with the God who made heaven and earth. You, you should do a search on that. You should do a study sometime on how often you find the phrase, in some form or fashion, who made heaven and earth. That comes up again and again and again. Because what else can you do after that? In other words, if you were, if you were to get into one of those back and forth arguments with somebody, well, I can lift 200 pounds. <laughs> well, I can run five miles with 200 pounds on my back. Well, I can skip five miles with 200 pounds on my back. Well, I can one-hop it on one leg with 200 pounds, and I can do it in the midst of Hurricane Dorian. Well, I made heaven and earth. Like, that ends the game, right? There's no more one-upping anything. Whoever can say, I made heaven and earth, wins the one-up game, right? There's nothing else left. Because when it says, I, when it says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth, He's the one who called everything out of nothing. Yeah, there's, that's it, right? That's the top. That's the winner of the game. And so the, the, you find biblical writers taking us again and again to this as, as almost being kind of the, 
the essential feature of the sovereignty of God. My help comes not from some pagan god or not from some earthly source, but the one who called all of this into existence. Now, what's interesting then is the way the rest of the psalm kind of speaks to elements of nature. So, so the psalmist is then going to talk about what this looks like. What does it mean my help comes from the Lord? In what ways does my help come from the Lord, the God who made heaven and earth? So then he goes on to say in verse 3, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. Now, we don't want to misunderstand the phrase, He will not allow your foot to be moved. In other words, we don't want that to mean, assume that means, we'll never have any kind of accident, like literal accident in life. That if we do have some kind of accident, it's not, our, it's not God's fault, it's our fault, all right? We don't want to think that way, right? Because, wow, that really throws our theology into kind of a really wacky mess. Now, this probably has something to do with the fact that the song is written for pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem on something less than ideal walkways. These would have been rocky. Perhaps some of the terrain might have been treacherous at times. In other words, to say, he'll not, he'll not let your foot be moved. I mean, this would have had special symbolic significance for people who would have been very mindful of the very ground beneath their feet and how easy it would have been to injure themselves in certain locations with their feet being moved. <laughs> so it's, it's an important promise here. And, and what he's getting at is not like a, like a literal promise, you'll never have any accidents or physical problems. It's not like a pilgrim never got injured. That would have been amazing. I mean, I don't know if they did or didn't, but I can't imagine that they had a 100% success rate, right, on their way to Jerusalem. So when he says, he'll not allow your foot to be moved, that, that obviously is dealing with, with, with a much larger issue, that those who, who rest in him, those who trust in him, can trust that they are secure, not necessarily in this life, meaning there can be a lot of bad things that can happen in this life. We can face a lot of tragedy, things that even threaten our physical lives, but our physical lives do not make up the sum total of our lives. Our earthly existence is not the sum total of our existence. This is pointing us to a much greater promise. God has us safely in His care. He who made the heavens and the earth He is not going to allow your foot to be moved. He keeps you. You can be certain that even if the worst in this life happens, you will be transported safely into His care. But then I love how he follows that up with this language, He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. That's just beautiful language. And for sure has a reference to the gods that may have had altars in the hills. Some of those gods had to be wakened up. You you, you remember the prophets of Baal and Elijah? All of that hullabaloo, all right, that's the theological term for what was going on, all right? You know the story, right, as they challenged the showdown on Mount Carmel, 
uh, the, the, the priests of Baal are going to show the power of Baal. And so, you know, they're, they're hooping and hollering. They're doing it for hours and hours. And, and eventually, Elijah starts to taunt them. At one time, ask if their God is going to the bathroom, all right? That's actually in the Bible, by the way. That's what he means. Maybe he's using the facilities. So Elijah's kind of a guy after my own heart, right? A little snark to him. I got it. I like it. But that's because they, they did feel like some of those gods had, you had to wake them up. That, that's not uncommon, by the way, in a lot of religions. I think there's features of Hinduism that have gods that the God, you have to wake them up. You have to yell and clap and shout, and you have to do all these things to get them out of bed. And so I have no doubt that the psalmist is referring to this. Look under the hills. Where does my help come from? It doesn't come from the hills. It comes from the God who made the heavens and the earth, a God who doesn't. You don't have to wake him up. He doesn't need an alarm set. He doesn't hit snooze. He's a God who never sleeps. And, and I, I love that variation. He's a God who does not slumber, nor does he sleep. So it's, it's not just that he doesn't actually go to sleep. I mean, he doesn't. But he, he also, like God never yawns, right? God never has to stand up, stretch it off for a minute, right? Get back to work. God is no less energetic at being God today than he was an eternity ago. Think about that while the hurricane's going on, all right? Okay? He's, he's never, God never expends energy. It never leaves him. He never does something and sits down and goes, whew, give me a minute, all right? Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, Pastor, there's a whole seventh day where he rested, doesn't mean he took a nap. It means he stopped because he was done. It doesn't mean he got tired and he needed a day off. He knew we would get tired and need a day off, not because he did. So here's a God who neither sleeps, he doesn't even slumber, he doesn't even get sleepy. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't get that, that, that late evening fog or wherever, whenever you get the fog. All right, you know, that doesn't happen to him. He's, he's, he's a God we can trust to keep us because He's, he's, he's all, always, always ready with the full amount of His energy. Verse 5, the Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. So the language of keeper meaning the one who, who cares for you. He is a caretaker. Uh, he is one who, who, who is like a refuge, that similar kind of language. And so the Lord is your shade at your right hand, that, that, that place of favor. So in the midst of the, uh, of the heat of the day, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Quite, quite frankly, I'm not exactly sure uh, why those two things are contrasted. It's always been a strange phrase to me. I mean, I get the sun, right, during the day. I get, I get that, but do you go out at midnight thinking, but get me the moon screen, right? Is there any such thing as moon screen, right? We're like, are we worried about the moon? I, I, don't, I don't know, but, I, but that's, that's what he says. He'll, he keeps me from the sun, and he keeps me from, from the moon. What most assume is this has something to do with the terrors of the night, right? 
That's, that's the language. That the sun is speaking of, of the heat and that the moon is speaking of, of the way the night often brings uh, uncertainty and lack of sight and, and other dangers to us. So, so, so God, God keeps us day. But really, and really, I would say the big thing being made here, the big point being made, following up from the fact that God neither slumbers nor sleeps, is that God is our keeper day and night. God is my keeper day and night. Quite frankly, now that I think about it, that might be really beneficial to us in about 15 hours. Does any, anybody else agree that there's only thing one wor- only thing worse than a hurricane is a hurricane at night, right? And I'm trying to think if I've ever been in one like actually just in the midst of the day. I don't think that. They've always been at night at some point, right? I know they last for a long time, but they're awful at night. They're awful at night. And so I, I think it is significant language then, right, that no matter what's happening during the day or at night, even while I'm asleep, God is the one who is keeping me. Then, then he, I think, ramps up that language in verse 7. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. Lord, Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. So I think that at that point, the psalmist then really gives us the meat of the promise. And it, and it is not that uh, I can expect every single one of my circumstances to work out. I probably don't need to tell you this. They won't, right? This is not the last trial we're going to have. It's probably not the last hurricane we're going to have, right? So, so we know that's not what this means. The text does not mean God keep makes, makes this. It'd be great if He made the big bubble, right? The big bubble that, kept, that pushed us all through. We could get out of our bubbles to come into church, get back in our bubbles to go back home, and all is well and good. Wouldn't that be great? But that verse isn't in there because I've looked through the whole book. So that's not in there. It, it is for sure you and I will face things that can cause our feet to stumble, that can hurt our hearts, that can hurt our minds, that can hurt our physical bodies, circumstances that can bring pain and grief and disappointment, despair, anxiety. All of these things are the reality of life. So the psalmist comes in here with the ultimate promise. God is a God who preserves your soul even when you feel like you're about to come unraveled. Is it not good news, church, that your perseverance is not dependent upon you? Not only is your salvation not dependent upon you, but the maintaining of your salvation is not dependent upon you. That God is a God who who perseveres for you. He's the God who keeps you your soul. And without a doubt, this takes us straight to the gospel. It takes us straight to the promise of Christ crucified and resurrected, recognizing that in Him, those who are in Him can be confident that that our souls are kept. We We will persevere. We will be preserved by the good grace of God. And that that will happen either here or there. Either way, I can trust that my God preserves me, going in, coming out from this time forth, and even forevermore. So again, we have, I think, helpful and instructive words to us. We're once again reminded of what is the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the presence of God, the power of God to God to do what God does and for Him to do it every second of the day. 
And so, you know, I would just encourage us then to remember this as we, you know, head into what, what may be some difficult days, you know, to come. We don't know what will come, and, and we've made it through worse. We'll make it through this one. We'll make it through it together, right? And we'll pray through it, and we'll look for ways in which our God can use us, even in difficult times, uh, to be a source of encouragement and a source of proclamation of the gospel. So be encouraged, then, church, by the goodness of God. He made the heavens, made the earth. This thing's not taking him by surprise. He's not caught off guard. He's not rousing out of sleep to come to our aid at some point. Our God is our keeper. He is our preserver. He is is at our right hand, present with us, even in the most difficult of moments. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us, for the opportunity we've had to pray together, to be encouraged by one another to be encouraged by Your Word. God, I pray that we would again just come to You in all trust and faith, knowing that You are the God who made the heavens and the earth. Our help comes from You, and so we ask for Your help. We ask for Your aid. We ask for Your intervention. We we trust that Your Word is true, and that what it says about You is right. And so, God, we ask that You would be our keeper, that You would be our helper that you would be our preserver, and that we might be able to endure whatever may come our way. So, Father, we trust our lives into your hands, and we pray, God, that you would continue to use us as you see fit, care for us through this storm. May we care for one another. Father, we confess we don't know what the days will bring, but we are grateful that we know that you do. And so, Father, we trust you with the days to come, and we ask that you would then gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.